0: Hello, I'm Darlene Nipper, CEO of Rockwood Leadership Institute and your host for this episode of Leading from the Inside Out. My guest today is Edgar Villanueva, Vice President of Programs and Advocacy at the Schott Foundation for Public Education and the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Edgar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you for saying yes. We really appreciate it. I would actually offer you a second to just add anything by way of introduction of yourself that you think I, I should mention.
1: Sure. Well, thanks
0: again for having me
1: on and hello to all of the Rockwood family and the friends of Rockwood, folks listening in. Um, of course, I was so happy to do a conversation with you, Darlene, because of our personal relationship and our professional relationship and all that Rockwood has meant to me. Um, it, it really was a, 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 a very pivotal moment in my life uh, when I went through my experience with Rockwood and everything that I'm doing now kind of sprang from that, that week that I spent in California. So um, it all comes back full circle. So, uh, yeah, happy to be on here and to talk about the work that I've been doing over the past year with this book. And it's an exciting time to be Indigenous. It's an exciting, terrifying time to be in this movement work. Uh, I think leadership is demanding all types of new things from us that, uh, you know, we, we have to step into. So thanks for the work that you do and for having me.
0: Absolutely, and 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 I'm glad that you mentioned this moment. I want to we'll come back to that, but I want to take you back, maybe by um, by way of your 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 website, um, where you mentioned your your mother was the first philanthropist that you knew, and um, I would love for you to share a little bit, just going back about more about you know your family and community. And, uh, you know, just the, you talked about, you know, your indigenous identity, um, but go back a little bit and how that relates to philanthropy for you. Sure. You're asking me who's my people, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I am from originally from North Carolina, uh, from the Lumbee tribe. We are a tribe that is in Southeast, uh, North Carolina, a very rural impoverished area, and uh, my mom was a, a teen mother, and uh, when at age five, she scooped me up, and we moved to the big city of Raleigh, North Carolina. That's about a, probably about an hour and a half west of our tribal community. And so I think um, when I say that my mom was the first philanthropist that I knew, a couple reasons that I say that, uh, one, for, for me and my background... Uh, Coming from, um, you know, poverty and a community that is very marginalized and does not have a lot of resources or power. You know, I was not growing up rubbing elbows with the Rockefellers of the world. Um, Yet, uh, traditions of giving and reciprocity, philanthropy were all around me. And um, I began to learn to give back and what my role and responsibility was in terms of giving and taking care and being in community uh, from my mom, because uh, although she was a single parent and worked two or three jobs at a time, there was always space in that schedule for for the work of ministry. And for my mom, that was happening predominantly through um, the church that I grew up in. And I tell this story about my mom in the book where she started what was called a bus ministry, And it simply was going around and inviting the children of the neighborhood to, um, you know, this opportunity to jump on a bus on Sunday and come to Sunday school and be in a place where they will be loved on and taught. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom was just passionate about extending that opportunity out to kids And at one point on a, on a given Sunday, she was busing in over 300 children to this church. um, So I just grew up every Saturday. We did outreach in the neighborhoods. We went out and visited the kids. I would dress up like a clown or whatever to entertain and be silly and just love upon the kids. So that was um, from as early as I can remember, we were a family that was just called to service. And although we were poor, um, and in a sense, I didn't quite know it, or I had an awareness that there were folks who were uh, even in worse conditions that I needed to help. So uh, that's that's how I uh, I grew up um, being oriented to that. And I think that that type of culture that many of us come from, those traditions of giving and philanthropy. Are things that we need to reclaim mm-hmm. um, and be very proud of, and and understand that the giving of our time and of our treasure and of our talent um, very much makes us all philanthropists. You don't have to be a millionaire or a billionaire or, or have you know buildings named after you or whatnot, but. Uh, we are um, often many of us are, are folks who come from communities that have uh, giving us just a part of who we
0: are. At first, I was going to ask you, what do you mean by decolonizing? You know, wealth or philanthropy. Um, but but maybe I would add to that. Are you saying by what you just described that there is another? You know, there is another definition for philanthropy that maybe. Not it sounds like you say reclaim. So maybe that we we've always known, but 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 uh, have lost touch with, or has fallen out of the mainstream around philanthropy um, over time. So how would you how would you define this decolonizing, and how does it relate to this reclaiming of the of the term that you're talking about here?
1: Yeah. So you know, philanthropy has become an institution, and it's a relatively new. Formalized sector. Um, some foundations are about a hundred years old, but I would say it's really been in the last seventy years that we have this institutional form of philanthropy um, as a part of the nonprofit sector. And you know, philanthropy as a word literally means love of of people, love of mankind, love of humankind, and something that is a quite you know. I think it's actually a very beautiful word, but in many ways, because of how institutional philanthropy has shown up in the way that uh, we have institutionalized and made philanthropy this thing of a transaction. It's kind of, uh, you know, tarnish the word. And philanthropy is not a, a word that warms the heart of a lot of people. <laughs> um, it actually kind of gives a headache uh, to, to some. Uh, my work around decolonizing wealth, to, to, to sort of simplify that, you know, I mentioned I'm Native American, so Um, I am a very unlikely person to find myself working in institutional philanthropy. Um, It is a field that has a lot of work to do around diversity still. You see more and more people of color, um, but by far around 90% of foundation executives um, are white, Um, 90% are higher, I think about 92% of board of directors uh, for foundations are white. So it is a, a very, very white field. Um, And a lot of folks, you have to think about who has the money, who has the money to start a foundation. You're going to, see that that tends to be uh, white folks who start foundations and then they hire within their trusted network of friends to run the foundations. And so for someone like me coming from quite the other end of the spectrum to find myself working in that space is um, sort of a phenomenon in a, in a sense. And so um, as I worked, uh, came to philanthropy, I chose to take the job 15 years ago because I, um, you know, again, felt called to service and called to ministry. I really resonated with the mission of the organization that I went to work for, the k p Reynolds Charitable Trust in North Carolina. And uh, like, like most people who, who choose these jobs, I thought, wow, I'm going to be a part of something big that's like giving back and moving resources into the community. Um, but what I found is that uh, the dynamics that exist in that space because because of the wealth and the extreme concentration of privilege uh the dynamics of of uh, sort of like white dominant culture um, of white supremacy or colonization are very, very pervasive, and they show up in all kinds of ways. And so what seems like, um, you know, uh, the charitable sector on the surface as this like really awesome thing that is a good thing. And yes, there's a lot of good work that happens. In many ways, the philanthropic industry has evolved to mirror uh, colonial structures and actually can reproduce hierarchy, um, ultimately doing more harm than good.
0: What kind of challenges have people brought to you around your thinking about this, given that mindset of money being the, the actual evil versus the way that we do things?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because regardless of where we lie on the political spectrum, if whether we're conservative or liberal uh, money is something that we all need and we all want, right? Like it, it, it. Money makes the world go round. Up, that might be another song. Um, <laughs> yes, a yeah, song about money, right? Um, and you know, money is a topic for those who are people of faith. Kind of going back to my upbringing, uh, money is the the most uh, talked about topic in the Bible. Like, money is a, a thing that we should not um, shun or shy away from. But yeah, absolutely, I, I understand why anyone would take uh, issue with the idea of money. But, it, you know, it, it's not that money, again, in itself is a bad thing. It's how we use money. Um, you know, in that scripture that is misquoted, it actually says the love of money is the root of all evil. Yes. Right. So not money, but it's the love of it. And if the love of money um, is is higher than our love of people or, the, or more, uh, the love of money is uh, a priority over the planet and each other and community than they're in as the evil. So the reason that you know there are children in cages as we speak right now is because of money, right? And so it all comes back down to money. And so I think it's really important for those of us who are in movement work, those of us who are in social change leadership, to understand how money and capital is flowing through the world and how um, it is being used in ways to oppress and dominate. Because um, in any campaign or any type of work we're doing to address those issues, we have got to disrupt and, and use money in a different way. And so money has been used in ways historically um, that have been um, super helpful, right? Philanthropy with all of its ills has uh, supported this civil rights movement, innovation, Whatnot. So we have examples of how money can be used in a good way. There is nothing wrong with having wealth and having money. I actually, I want to build wealth. I I want to have the feeling that I have more than enough and that I'm not one car accident away from being homeless. Um, You know, I've done pretty well for myself. Um, but I'm like a a lot of folks where my check is a community check where I'm taking care of the grandma and the mom and all of those things. Right. So I would like to get to the place where I have enough money in the bank to feel super Confident that if I pass a quarter on the street, I don't have to pick it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't pick up quarters, and it's not because I love money or want to hoard it. But there is, uh, you know, I am totally um, okay with the idea of having money. I just want everybody to have it. I don't want to have money and no, and to the to the extent that others don't have it, right? I don't want to exploit or harm people or or this planet so that I can have money. But the thing is. Uh, we have so many resources, right? If we put on our abundance mindset hat, there's enough wealth to go around that we all should be uh, coordinating those resources, resources and sharing those resources in a way that we all mutually benefit. And so, um, I think sometimes those of us who don't come from wealth um, have a poverty mentality almost um, inside of a defense, defense mechanism. or if we work in nonprofit organizations, we think that we're supposed to underpay our people or struggle or not have cute offices. Um, and this is something that I push back on. I think that we're worthy to have all of the nice things, right? Um, and um, but we're working toward a, a world that everyone benefits and has equal access to the same types of privileges and opportunities.
0: But how does healing play into this notion that you have of decolonizing wealth?
1: Yeah, you know, for for me on a personal basis, I think when I was at Rockwood, um, there was a lot of frustration coming out um, for me at that time as a person that has been in the sector for some time and really trying to push for change and to practice the work of equity and diversity and all of the things that we talk about, but to put that in practice in my institutions. And um, you know, there's just a frustration that the particular uh, cohort I was in was all folks who work in philanthropy and I was, I reached a point where I was like, we're having these same conversations. I'm so tired of of people feeling oppressed and limited and stifled in these jobs because uh, of these, uh, you know, Uh, underlying things dynamics within philanthropy that we're not allowed to really talk about publicly Um, those are really the root problems right and so I was sort of angry and it was also um, right around the time of after the election where um, I started this this writing process and I'm not a person that holds that emotion of anger and frustration I am a silly, silly bird you know and and just a very forgiving kind of uh, this happy-go-lucky person. And so as, as these, you know, the anger and frustration was just kind of piling on, um, I, I felt like I, I had to do something to, to get this off of me. I spent some time back in North Carolina with my community there, and I was talking with an elder about, you know, you know saying to her, I, I just feel angry. And um, I was reminded that I needed to do some some healing work. And especially in times like now where there's so much pain and so much happening around, we've got to be intentional about our own healing journey as much as we are uh, being uh, involved in work that's helping to heal our communities. So for me, decolonizing is a work of healing because um, I had realized that I was so colonized, I had so assimilated and given up my original instructions to this idea of the type of leader that I felt like I had to be a philanthropy to be successful. um I had tried all the things like code switching, like all the things to to really show up and be the kind of leader they wanted me to be, and I felt completely sort of like empty inside and that I was not. Uh, being the type of leader that um, I was designed to be. And so for me, getting back to to that uh, place of wholeness was a process of decolonizing or unlearning uh, kind of these uh, sort of dominant ways of showing up and being. And I found that uh, journey to be connected to healing um, in my own community of, of shedding myself of this frustration, of this anger, and really getting on a path to um, doing something about it. And, um, and, it's, and, and that journey that was personal for me is something that I believe can be um, something that groups of people, organizations kind of go through together, our communities. In fact, this entire country could go through a process of truth and reconciliation So I call, to to boil down the large word of decolonization, for me, is just really about healing because we can't undo colonization, but what we can do is acknowledge the trauma that it has caused in all of us, whether you're a person of color, indigenous, or white, um, and begin a healing journey to repair from that trauma.
0: Mm, mm, That's really powerful. So um, as we're thinking about this word decolonizing as a healing journey, um what are some of the i mean what could that look like in practice what are some of the ways that i I heard you say we can we can do this in at many different levels so are there particular ways that either you you're working with yourself or that you've seen folks in groups or organizations do that are really you know useful or could be instructive for the rest of us, you know, of what it looks like to decolonize either our own wealth or our own relationships to money and or if we're working in one of these systems, how do people bring some of this possibility to the institutions they're working in?
1: You know, I think like like a lot of things, it it starts with uh, awareness and Like you said, we are so desensitized to um, colonization. Uh, We often think of colonization as something that happened years ago, uh, but it's actually still happening in real time. And so actually being aware of the dynamics of colonization and how they're showing up and not allowing ourselves to become so desensitized to that. Um, we live in such a culture of, of sort of white dominant narrative that we've internalized that to the point that it's normal. Um, we have all sort of collectively agreed at some level uh, that white is better and that white is right and that white is beautiful. And you know, and that is a, a product of uh, you know the books we read and the shows we watch on television. All of the, this narrative has just been driven by. Uh, folks who are white. And so, um, you know, I had a friend who described it uh, really beautifully. Like we we wake up every single day with a pill in our mouth. And we have to make a conscious choice to swallow that pill or to spit that pill out. And that Mm -hmm. pill is white supremacy, we are, it's just the default. And so, how can we become so aware of the dynamics that every morning we make very intentional choices to spit the pill out? And that is the hard work that we all have to commit to doing. Um, you know, it, it's like walking backwards on a, a moving sidewalk at the airport. Everyone's coming this way, right? We've gotta, we're turning around with our bags and just busting through the crowd in the opposite direction. And so that's the level of commitment and awareness that it's gonna take for us to begin to dismantle white supremacy. But to, to make that a little bit more um, tangible, uh, in the the processes that I outline in the book around healing, the first step is grief. And you know, that, that sounds like not super exciting. you know, like no one wants to, to grieve. Um, but the truth is in order to, to heal as people, as organizations, as a community, we have got to have a process of truth and reconciliation. And the fact is, uh, when we, we understand the truth of what has happened in this country, the truth about how we have perpetuated um, some of this injustice, either voluntarily or whatnot, we're going to feel a sense of grief about that. And that's a good thing. We, we should have a conscience about it. Um, but, you know, in, the, in this country, especially, we are so programmed to be futuristic and forward thinking and not uh, look toward the past. And so we often Uh, kind of bury uh, these things under the surface where they fester until there's, you know, outrageous acts um, that are horrifying because we haven't dealt with the root of the problem. And even in our families, there are certain conversations that need to be had that we're not having, right? Um, uh, Pain and abuse and things that have happened that we sweep under the carpet and we just move forward. And I was kind of raised that way personally, right? It's like, there was sort of the sentiment, well, we're still here and we're still on our two feet, so let's just keep moving forward. But the problem is when we don't confront uh, trauma either in our families or in our communities or in our history as a country, those things begin to uh, fester under um, the surface and we're not able to get to a complete place of wholeness or wellness. And I think that's... um, That's a major problem that we have as a country. We don't teach the true history of our country in our schools. And I'm not asking, you know, for folks to, you know, I I don't like the idea of being sad. And like, I can't even watch some of these great new shows that are out because I know they're going to be really triggering for me. Right. But we do need to have a process in this country of truth and reconciliation. We've never had an official apology from the U.S. government to First Nations people for genocide. Mm -hmm. that. We've never had an apology for every single treaty that was broken. Every one of them was broken. We've never officially apologized to Uh, Black Americans for for slavery, our original sin. And so when we as a society just refuse to acknowledge really these things that have happened, um, then uh, we are all holding that uh, under the surface and we can't move forward. If we can just put it all out there once and for all and speak the truth and know the truth, then our actions um, in terms of how we respond are going to be so much more authentic Right. Mm-hmm. Example, reparations since, you know, which is related to money. I'm super excited about the conversation uh, on reparations that we're having in the United States. Um, I'm thrilled that it's a part of, you know, the, the Democratic sort of platform kind of at this point. But what I am concerned about with that is that it feels like a quick fix to me if to just kind of throw some money and say, OK, once and for all, we're going to move beyond that and we're going to be on this equal ground in a post-racial society. Um, I think money needs to be moved to repair that harm, but I also think that we as a community have to have a process of truth and reconciliation to do the necessary healing and acknowledgement. I just want to be acknowledged for, um, I want my history to be acknowledged and I want to be apologized to. Um, And if we were, if the U.S. government was truly sorry for what it has done, if it truly wanted to apologize, it would be no question about reparations. That would be an easy policy solution, but the Reason that we um, keep kicking that around and we're not getting to resolution around reparations is because we we haven't grieved our history as a country and we definitely haven't apologized. And so, with the moving of money, we have to also deal with the underlying uh, trauma and truth um, of our histories, so that we can use resources in a way uh, moving forward that is respectful to that history whether you're moving money literally as a foundation mm-hmm. um, or if you're designing programs or if you're in education or in healthcare, we have to understand the historical context of the problems we're trying to solve. So, um, you know, we, we're not applying blanket approaches to, to groups of people um, who are impacted by issues in different ways based on our history.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Uh, so look, I'm not going to let you get away without saying something about... Uh, practices I heard you i, I didn 't jump on you, but I heard you earlier talking about you shouldn 't be the one to talk about you know <laughs> a certain kind of self care or or um, uh, personal ecology or you know that kind of thing but what what kind of practices are you doing? Um, or what ones resonate with you the most as something that you really, you know, as a part of your leadership, feel like it's critical for you to pay attention to. I mean, it could be purpose, could be vision. I, I hear you around ecology. That's probably the hardest for all of us, by the way. And um, yeah, I just want to wanna, wanna, uh, begin to wrap up and, and end a little bit on that note so that uh, folks from the network kind of hear your experience around carrying the practices forward
1: yeah you know i i I do i'm not consistent but um for me especially because i live in new york city now and i'm constant it's just constant noise and people around so for me i enjoy the moments of solitude um i really enjoy getting massages Mm -hmm. i try to go about every two weeks to get a massage which is quite a commitment but I think there's something um, about just being in a quiet room for one. It's like I tell people I pay to take a nap in a quiet place in New York City. Okay? <laughs> um, and I think there's just something very therapeutic about the human touch um, that uh, and that transference of energy in some ways and that release of anxiety from, from my body that is physically um, healing for me. So that is my practice. Um, I also try to... Um, Uh, I I tap into things that bring me joy. And one of the things from my past growing up in the South and growing up in the church is that um, I've always loved black gospel music. And so uh, when my partner's not at home, I will put on my black gospel music wide open and while I'm washing dishes and just shout around the house and let it all out. And so it's kind of bringing back to me just like lots of happy memories from how I grew up and, there's just something about black gospel music that is like truly liberating and empowering to me. So I think it's finding those those things that bring you joy and, and holding those close and so making time. Making time is the hardest thing, I think, for all of us. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, regardless of how busy I am, I will always squeeze in that phone call to a friend on my way to a meeting or wherever. So that's going to crack me up on the phone and give me that deep belly laugh. I try to have a deep belly laugh at, at least once a day. I think that. Wow. Really- far so
0: yeah wow that is that is I'm, I'm gonna have to take that with me you know I you know I take what we talk about into the rooms of a deep belly laugh once a day sounds like it's right up my alley that's that's that's, that's I love it I love it we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up you know always ask people what song is on your uh, movement uh mixtape you know there's 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 just there's a
1: song that I sing every day um that a lot of people may not know again it's going back to my roots in the church <clears throat> but it's just a song that just says peace peace wonderful peace and I, I think it's for me being uh living in a pretty chaotic moment right now in terms of schedule and, and New York City and just all the noise but it, I, I just hum that song in, in my head as I'm walking somewhere um it's just peace peace wonderful peace coming down from the father above yeah, mm-hmm. so I just try to be intentional about my piece um, because, you know, as I used to say, Growing up in the church, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away.
0: All right now. I so, <laughs> I so appreciate that. <laughs> On that note, I want to say thank you for that and for everything, Edgar. Really, really want to appreciate you for taking this time. I know how busy you are and how demanding it all is. And uh I'm so immensely grateful to be one person among the many that's following your leadership right now and I'm really grateful for you joining us and for being who you are in the world thank you brother
1: Thank you. I appreciate you. And thank you for the, rock, uh, the work of Rockwood.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, listen, that's it for this episode of Rockwood's Leading from the Inside Out podcast. Uh, thank you again to Edgar Villanueva and from all of us at Rockwood. We wish you joyful leadership. Thanks for joining me.